0: Welcome back. We are at time, so we should pass time, so we should probably get going. I'll open us in prayer, and then we will pick up where we left off in Deuteronomy 14. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that you've given to us. We thank you that it is a word of warning, so we know the way to avoid, and we thank you that it is a word of promise, so we know in whom to trust, and we do trust you as we come here this morning yet again to this text. We pray that you would show us the wisdom that you have laid here, and we pray that as you do so that you would increase our joy in following you and in living according to your commands. These are not given to us to be burdensome, but these are words to be rejoiced in. Help us rejoice this morning in these words we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Deuteronomy 14. This morning, we pick up in verse 21. A very brief review of last week, though, if you are in Deuteronomy 14. Moses is explaining Israel's identity to them. In verses 1 and 2, he says, You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead, which... Uh, relates to who these people are identifying themselves with. Then verse 2, the reason they shouldn't, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. After this, Moses gives food laws. That is how Israel is to express her identity in the midst of nations Who the Lord has not chosen for himself. So the food laws represent Israel's election out from the rest of the peoples of the earth. So every time Israel comes to eat and refuses to eat with a Gentile because they can eat things that Israelites can't, they are basically saying, We are Yahweh's children and you are not. We are holy, you are not. We are chosen by the only true God. You are not. That's what the food laws communicated. And in general, the foods that Israel ate bore a resemblance to the same sorts of food, you might say, that was placed on the Lord's altar. Even though the Lord opens those food laws up for Israel in dramatic ways, he's way more generous with them uh, than what he takes by himself. Now that still hangs there. But now when we come to Deuteronomy 14, verse 3, you shall not eat any abomination. That does not mean the food that Israel is not permitted to eat is bad in and of itself. Because if we go back to Genesis 9, verses 3 and 4, when Noah comes off the ark, the Lord says this, every moving thing that lives... Shall be food for you, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So the restriction on eating blood, that is universal, um, equivalent, we might say, to a creation ordinance. It's not that, but it's equivalent to that. It is it is throughout uh, humanity that is not supposed to eat blood. But the Lord restricts Israel's diet as a way to show his restriction on who he has chosen to be his people. At the Sinai Covenant, that is Israel. So when it says, you shall not eat any abomination, that means it is ethically inappropriate, morally inappropriate, theologically inappropriate for Israel to consume those foods outside of those food laws Given her holy status. Because Israel is holy, she is not to eat in those foods. This leads us now all the way down to verse 21 in the last part of it, but we'll read the whole verse. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. So that is what uh, does not permit Israel to eat any carcass, because they are holy. But that holiness is also related to the last line of verse 21 that we didn't talk about last week. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. The reason I went back to verse 3 is because of how it relates to verse 21. Nobody knows exactly what to make of verse 21. There are really three possibilities about the restriction on boiling a kid in its mother's milk. Perhaps the concern is simply humanitarian. You may remember in chapter 22, Moses tells Israel, when you come across a nest, you may take the eggs of the bird, but you may not take the mother of the eggs and the eggs together. You have to let the bird go free, though you may eat the eggs. The reason for that is if we consume not only the young, but also the young bearing, we end up doing ourselves a disservice. It ends up being a humanitarian concern. Perhaps the restriction on boiling a kid in its mother's milk has to do with colostrum and the reddish hue that that colostrum can give the milk. It could look like uh, you're consuming the blood along with the milk. That is a possibility. The third possibility is that just as mixing Jews and Gentiles is a mixing of what is holy and what is unholy, it is also unnatural to mix the instrument of life and use it as an instrument of death. That that which is being cooked. Whatever the exact reason is, we don't know. And it could be a combination of them. Uh, We don't know exactly what the point is, but again it relates to Israel's holy status Mentioned again in verse 21, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Thoughts or questions before we move on into verse 22? Well, I'm not going to wait long for him, so let's move on to verse 22. Let's read verses 22 to 26. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money or silver and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money on whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. We'll save verse 27 for a bit. So now we've gone from food laws to tithing, and it might seem like Moses has made a major shift in topic. He hasn't. All of these topics are interrelated. He switches subtopics, you might say, but the theme is still the same. You will notice in verse 23 that Moses again reiterates before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, and then again, in verse 26, you shall rejoice, you in your household. These are the exact same themes that we had back in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 5, and verse 7. So we began the summer in chapter 12. Here Moses says, verse 5, But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring all your offerings, but now down in verse 7. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake. So the theme in chapter 12 is rejoicing before the Lord. That theme comes back up again now in chapter 14. That is an indication that we're still on the same major theme. We're still on the same major topic. We haven't really switched, so all of these things are interrelated. All worship, including what Israel does or does not eat, all worship, and therefore all life, is integrated in such a way that even the way we eat and the way we enjoy creation is a matter of worship. So if we go to First Timothy chapter 4, Paul points us in the same direction. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. The way that happens is through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, what are the things that are deceitful spirits and teachings of demons? How do these people teach? What do they teach? Verse 3, Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. That's worship, to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, including reptiles. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Notice how holiness works in the New Testament compared to how it works under the Sinai Covenant. In the Old Covenant, if a holy people eats an unclean food, they become defiled. In the New Testament, the food itself becomes holy when it is used by holy people. So now rather than holiness being contaminated by that which is unclean, Holiness absorbs what is unclean through prayer, through worship, through thanksgiving, through the word of God. And it is brought in and incorporated and made useful for the believer. So holiness is no longer threatened by external contagion. Rather, holiness is the contagion. In the old covenant under Sinai, which generally was the more powerful factor, death or life. Before Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, death was the more powerful of the two. That's why holiness gets overpowered by uncleanness. After Christ's victory, which is the more powerful, life or death? Life. You want to know what Deuteronomy 14:21 not boiling a kidnet's mothers milk is about which is the more powerful life or death do not use the instrument of life as an instrument of death Israel is foreshadowing this very reality by refusing to use the instrument of life as an instrument of death and being separate from the people of God. So when Israel follows these food laws, and particularly ones like what we find at the end of chapter, uh, the end of the section in chapter 14, is that life is going to have more power than death. That is unheard of in the ancient world. Israel is saying God is a God of life. And so the way we even eat represents that. And she does that by being a people holy to the Lord her God. Israel celebrates that fact through tithing. Celebrates it in how they eat. Celebrates it in how they tithe and eat part of their tithe. That's why tithing and the unclean foods in chapter 14 are related issues. Israel is celebrating her holy status by her tithing. That holiness is reflected in what Israel does and does not eat. So the issues are inseparably tied. Again, Moses hasn't shifted topics. He's shifted subtopics, but he's still on the same theme of being a holy people who rejoices before the Lord their God. Now let's go into the privilege that Israel has in celebrating that holiness. That's, again, verse 22. And we've already read it, but verses 22 and 23. Allow Israel to eat part of the tithe. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. Verse 23. Now, and before the Lord your God, and the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So Israel eats part of the tithe. This is unexpected. The tithe has been brought up two times so far, first in Leviticus 27. So let's go back to Leviticus 27 and see what the tithe is all about back there. Leviticus 27, verse 30. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. What that means is if I have to tithe a tenth of my apple crop, but I want to have that apple crop, I'm able to buy back those apples at the value that those apples are and add one fifth of that value. That goes to the Lord. I get the apples back. Okay? That's what it means to redeem it. Verse 32, And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that passes under the herdsman's staff, shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. So here, animals cannot be purchased back and one does not distinguish between good or bad animals. Whether the animal is good or whether the animal is bad it goes to the Lord. That is different than a sacrifice. The sacrifice has to meet certain qualifications the animals for tithing do not have to meet qualifications other than they are simply the tenth one born. That's it. So here when it says it is holy to the Lord that means it goes to the priesthood in the book of Leviticus The people of Israel are not called holy. The priests are called holy. That's different in the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, it is the people called holy. There is no distinction between priests and people. And so we need to understand which book we're in in order to understand what's going on. That's one of the big things to remember. In Leviticus, when it means it belongs to the Lord or it's holy, it means it belongs to the priesthood, not to the people. Let's move on to Numbers 18 because this clarifies what is going on in Leviticus 27. Numbers 18. We'll look at verse 21. And then we'll jump down to verses 24 to 29. So Numbers 18, verse 21. To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for the service that they do, their service at the tent of meeting. Jump down to verse 24. For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. Moreover, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Moreover, you shall speak and say to the Levites, When you take from the people of Israel the tithe that I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. And your contribution shall be counted to you as though it were the grain of the threshing floor and as the fullness of the winepress. So you shall also present a contribution to the Lord from all your tithes, Which you receive from the people of Israel. And from it you shall give the Lord's contribution to Aaron the priest. Out of all the gifts to you, you shall present every contribution due to the Lord. From each, its best part is to be dedicated. Now let me cliff notes that real quick. This is how it works Israel grows a crop has a herd, whatever the case may be, a tenth of it is holy to the Lord. What that means is they distribute it to the Levites. The Levites are given no land in the people of Israel. They're given some cities and some pasture land around it because what are they going to do with the cattle that they're given? Those cattle have to go somewhere. Sheep have to go somewhere. So Israel gives a tenth of their income to the Levites who are responsible for the administration of the temple. The Levites give a tenth of all that they get and give it to Aaron and his sons, the priests. Only Aaron's descendants are to serve as priests. So Levites are the tribe of Israel. Aaron is a family of Levites within that tribe. So a tenth of Israel's income goes to the Levites, the tribe. A tenth of that income goes specifically to Aaron and his sons who are, uh, meet the qualifications of serving in the priesthood. Does all that make sense? Great. Not in Leviticus, nor in Numbers, does the Lord let people eat their own tithe. What in the world is Moses doing? in Deuteronomy 14. This comes mostly out of left field, except he notices one thing. I should have kept my Bible open at Numbers 18. He notices one bit of logic that we have not gotten to yet. Numbers 18, verse 30. So we read to the end of verse 29. Look at verse 30. Therefore you shall say to them, this is the Levites, when you have offered from the tithe that you've received, the best of it, when you have offered the best of that to Aaron and the priests, then the rest shall be counted to the Levites as produce of the threshing floor and as produce of the wine press. And you may eat it in any place, you and your households, for it is your reward in return for your service in the tent of meeting. And you shall bear no sin by reason of it when you have contributed the best of it. But you shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, lest you die. So this is what's going on. The tithe that Israel has re- that the Levites have received is holy. Because it is holy, it is supposed to be eaten in a holy place. That's why Israel is supposed to bring all of their sacrifices, all of the contributions to the place that the Lord has chosen, and eat them there. They are holy. There's one exception to that. The Levites, when they receive the tithe, have received a holy thing. The Levites may eat it wherever they live, wherever they please, because it is counted to them as the produce from the threshing floor. So the only time something holy can be consumed away from the temple is when the Levites are eating the sustenance that the Lord has provided for them. Moses notices that rationale. Even though the tithe is holy... They've given their tenth to the priests. The Levites may eat it. And even though it's supposed to be consumed at the Lord's dwelling, the Levites are permitted to eat it anywhere. Moses reverses that for the case of the common Israelite. Even though the tithe is holy and should only be eaten by the priest and the Levite, Israelites are allowed to indulge in some of it. Without question, so, So you can imagine you're bringing the equivalent of a tenth of your income to the temple. And you're there for a few days celebration. Are you really going to spend a tenth of your income in a few days of festivities? You better not, right? Um, The Lord wants Israel to be lavish when they come. But you're not going to spend a whole tenth of it. So Israel partakes in some of that tithe, though not eating the whole thing. So Moses is switching uh, the logic here just a little bit. Even though these things are holy and Israel isn't supposed to eat them, they are given the concession to indulge in some of them. That creates some logistical challenges, though. So back now to uh, Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 14, the logistical challenges are if What you are tithing is too significant for you to carry in produce or in animals, convert it into cash, bring the cash into Jerusalem, and then spend it on whatever you desire. And so there's a a logistical thing that uh, Moses also allows them to go through. But there are two reasons for the reversal of that logic. The first reason is this. The tithe is still holy, and with the exception of the Levites, needs to be consumed in a holy place. That logic holds. So Israelites, if they are to eat it, they do have to go to where the Lord will put his name. The Levites and the poor alone are given the exception to eat holy things away from the temple. Here's a modern equivalent. Every year we have our fall kickoff, right? Right? Where does the money for that fall kickoff come from? It's your tithes, right? That is part of what is going on. So you are actually eating part of your tithe when we have our fall kickoff, right? That is different than saying to yourself, you know, the $5 of my tithe that would have gone to the fall kickoff, why don't I just save that and eat it home by myself? Or not give it, right? We don't do that. And there's something inappropriate about what goes on in our mentality, as, we might, as someone might say that to themselves, right? We recognize how inappropriate that would be. There is something right about indulging in the benefits of our own tithing among God's people. There's nothing wrong with that. The Lord permits that and encourages that. And that's one of the things that we do as a church as well. So the fact that Israel gets to consume part of their tithe in festal celebration before the Lord should not throw any of us for any loop. But it does the commentators in big ways. The second thing is that God's concern for those without means, without typical means, trumps his concern for scrupulous observance of rituals. So... Hosea 6.6 is quoted by Jesus in Matthew 12, verse 7. He actually says this twice in Matthew. I'm choosing the Matthew 12 one. This is as Jesus and his disciples are going through the grain fields. His disciples are plucking heads of grain and eating them on the Sabbath because they are hungry. The Pharisees get up in a huff about it. And Jesus' response to them in verse 7 of Matthew 12 is this, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So what Jesus is saying there is this, My disciples are hungry, and it pleases the Lord that they break the Sabbath in your eyes in order to eat. That is the same thing that holds true In this issue of tithing. That is, the poor and the Levite are able to consume it away from the sanctuary because they don't have other means. And the Lord's concern that they be fed is more important than the fact that a holy thing be eaten in a holy place. Same logic that David and the priest use when he comes with his men to eat the showbread. It is more important to have mercy than it is to follow ritual of sacrifice. The Lord is pleased by that. So two things uh, right there out of that one. Uh, The reason is it is holy and ought to be consumed in a holy place, but there are by holy people, uh, but that uh, has exceptions to it. The second reason for the reversal is this. The end of verse 23 in Deuteronomy 24. So Deuteronomy 14, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 14, verse 23. The reason that they are able to do this, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Israel is to recognize what they are eating, why they are eating it, and from whose hand they have received it. Not just this section of the tithe that they're eating, the whole crop. So if we fast forward to Deuteronomy 26, we will discover here the ritual that Israelites are to engage in when they bring their tithe before the Lord. So Deuteronomy 26, verses 1 to 11. And when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from your land, and that the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and shall set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. That's the bronze altar um, on the outside if you've been here Sunday nights or have a visual of the, the tabernacle. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a great, uh, he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. And we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonder. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God... And worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given you. And to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. That's the ritual the Israelites are to engage in when they come to enjoy their tithe before the Lord. God has given Israel, 90% of what they have, the full 100%, he reclaims 10% of it. Israel is to remember everything they have, they have because the Lord gave it. And he allows them to indulge in the 90% plus what they are going to use to celebrate before the Lord. Why do they do that? The Lord gives the reason at the end of Deuteronomy 14, verse 23 that you may learn to fear the Lord your God. That is to recognize the goodness in what he's given, to rejoice before him, but it also means to recognize that he can cut that off anytime, for any reason. They have what they have because the Lord gave it. The last thing to mention here, I think, is at the end, is uh, verse 26. Celebrating the Lord's generosity. And whatever your appetite, oh, and spend the money on whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. This, the Lord is encouraging, and we could even say commanding, extravagant celebration. Whatever you want, it's yours. Enjoy. The Lord is pleased when his people are fat and happy. That's what he's telling Israel to be here. Be fat and happy. Eat your fill on whatever you want. Can you imagine what it would have been like when, I was, when you were a kid, if, I mean, let's, let's uh, smash time frames together. Have you ever been in the candy shop that is adjacent to Shields? Can you imagine what it would be like if your parents took you in there and said, Whatever you want, enjoy. We're here for two hours. Get whatever you want. Like, that's basically what the Lord is doing here with his people. He's bringing them here. We're going to get whatever you want, and we're going to celebrate together. That is opportunity, and that is privilege. There is no people in the world who should celebrate like the Jews. This is it. We are the Lord's chosen people. They aren't. We are here to celebrate because he's given us in abundance, remembering he made us the head of nations, not the tail. We will lend to nations. We will not borrow. We have more than we can handle, and we are to use that to celebrate. And the Lord here is telling his people, do that. And use your tithe to do it. That's generosity. Thoughts or questions before we move on to the, the last part of the tithe here? Yeah, what benefit is there in serving the Lord when the, when the people don't support, right? Good point. Thanks, Becky. Anything else? All right. Along with that privilege comes obligation. Verse 27. And you shall not neglect or forsake the Levite who is within your towns for he has no portion or inheritance with you. You'll notice at the end of verse 26, who rejoices, you and your household. Now Moses expands that, uh, those who are to celebrate, by including the Levite in verse 27. So Moses here reminds Israel, though you may indulge in part of your tithe, it doesn't actually belong to you. Do not neglect the Levite to whom that tithe is due. This is payday, if you will, for the Levite. So, even though Israel indulges in their tithe, it is still to go to the Levite. They are, The people of Israel are to include those who are disadvantaged in their celebration, and it begins again with the Levite. The Levite has no land for production. And he has a little land for livestock. And he certainly has no festal luxuries. If he is to indulge in the same way the people of Israel are, it will be at their generosity. That's how it happens. Now, this should be entirely possible. First, as we said before, there's almost no way a household should consume a tenth of their annual income in a few days' celebration. The second thing is that tithes belong to the Levite, so it is reasonable for Israel to bring along the Levite as they go to participate. The third thing is that Levites were scattered throughout Israel's land. They had towns and villages here and there. It should be no burden for a family to invite a Levite or multiple Levites along with them to come and make the pilgrimage to what would end up being Jerusalem. And not only that, as we saw in Numbers 18, the Levites have an administrative function. Part of that administrative function is ensuring that not only the Levites but also the poor receive what they need out of that tithe that Israel gives. So the Levites who function in a service to the tabernacle also have a service in regards to the poor in the community. And that is because they hold the tithe, they are responsible for the tithe, and it belongs to them, they are responsible to be giving some of that to the poor as well. And we'll see that as we go along here in just a little bit. So verse 28, At the end of every three years you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce, in the same year, or in that same year, or in that year, and lay it up within your towns. The reason I say it that way is because nobody is uh, entirely positive whether this every three years occurs in the same three-year cycle or whether it alternates. The Olympics work both ways, right? The Summer Olympics are every four years. It's on a four-year cycle. But the Olympics are on a two-year cycle because it alternates between Winter and Summer Olympics, right? How does this work with the tithing? Is everyone on the same three-year cycle? Or is there an alteration of those cycles where different families are on a different year cycle? No one's positive. The general inclination is that everyone is on the same three-year cycle. So imagine Winter and Summer Olympics all being on the same four-year cycle. Now, that's likely how it went, but nobody knows for sure. But at any rate, every two years, families make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem with their tithe, and they feast, and they're supposed to bring along the Levite. But every three years, they're supposed to do something a little bit different. They're to take it and lay it up in their towns. Then verse 29, And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Now, real quickly, there are two interpretive challenges in verses 28 and verse 29. The first is this. All the translation imply that the poor come to the community where the food is laid up and they partake in some of the tithe. however, In verse 28, let's do verse 29 first. When it says that they shall come and eat and be filled, that come is ambiguous whether that means they shall join you in pilgrimage or whether they shall go within those city gates where the food is supposedly stored up and enjoy it there. The question is this, do the underprivileged have opportunity to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem and enjoy their portion of the tithe? Or do they only enjoy it inside their local communities? In most other places in Deuteronomy, where it says that they will be eaten, be satisfied, it has the implication that people are doing that within their own homes. So the Lord says, I'll give you your rains in their seasons, you will eat and you'll be satisfied. What he's saying is you'll have plenty at home. That's all he's saying. However, in the context of celebration before the Lord, when it says, and they shall come, what does it mean? Does it mean they go to Jerusalem or to wherever the Lord has chosen to put his name? Or does it mean they will come into their local communities? The text is ambiguous and it doesn't say. Most likely that ambiguity is on purpose. It wouldn't be uncommon for widows and orphans to have no means to make the pilgrimage, so they come to their local communities. On the other hand, the text is trying to encourage Israel to be generous, not only taking along the Levite, but also taking along, even on the off years, those who are in their local communities who have no opportunity to make that pilgrimage in any other way. And so the come probably serves two purposes. But that's also the second uh, interpretive challenge here as well. And that means that the produce is actually stored in local communities. The Hebrew is ambiguous. So here's, here's how verse 28 reads in the ESV. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. The way the Hebrew actually reads is... At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and cause rest within your gates. There's no direct object, which means this. Is it the tithe that is caused to rest within the gates, or is it rest that is given to the poor who are within the gates? Who gets the rest? Or what is the object of the rest? So let me put it this way. I can cause this book to rest on that stool. I just did that. In the same way, Israel can cause all of their produce to rest within the city gates. Also, I can cause my children to experience fullness and satisfaction and say, I've given them rest. I'm giving them a break, giving them relief. It's the same word, right? We can do that in English, rest and rest. There is no indication who or what is to rest at the end of verse 28. Why is that? Again, there's likely an intentional ambiguity. It is likely that some of the tithe is going to be left within the local communities So that those who cannot travel can enjoy it. More significantly than that, though, and theologically, what Israel is doing is giving the poor in their community the same fullness and the same satisfaction that they themselves typically receive. They're giving them rest too, they're creating a spirit of ease and a spirit of comfort among those who normally don't get it. That is not insignificant. So there's uh, three quick things. Actually, I'll pause real fast. Any thoughts or questions over over how it works? Great, because I probably couldn't answer it anyway. (laughs) Three things here uh, to stand out in closing. First, in no year does it appear that the Israelite indulges in the whole tithe. It seems as though two out of the three years in that cycle, they get to indulge in more of it, The third year, it appears they are supposed to be a little bit more restrained. So third years might see a bump in giving uh, because the tithe is getting distributed among more people. However, all of it has a directly religious purpose. They eat it before God, and all of the others uh, receive it because they have no other way to receive it. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 26 one more time. And I want to point out... Something that I don't think we read earlier on. So we went through how Israel is to go through that tithing ritual. There's one more thing here. Starting in verse 12. So we read through verse 11. Let's pick it up in verse 12 of Deuteronomy 26. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. So there again we have a little bit more clear. Verse 13, Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. Now here's the key line. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning, or removed any of it while I was unclean, or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. And by the way, isn't it funny how verse 14, this is such a crucial verse, it does not forbid Israel to engage in eating some of their tithe in the third year. It says, I have not eaten any of it while I was in mourning doesn't say anything about not eating any of it. Just not that while I was in mourning. I have not removed any of it while I was unclean. Food laws were dealing with issues of cleanness, partially. And the third thing, or offered any of it to the dead, which again relates back to Deuteronomy 14, verse 2, where we began earlier. So lots of things going on in verse 14. So all that to say, even in the years where there was a bump in giving, because it was the year of tithing, Israel likely still ate some of that tithe. Second thing to think about. God's concern for those who do not have access to the means of wealth causes him to make stipulations for their well-being. The sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, the Levite, the thing they all have in common is not that they are poor, because it's not necessarily true. It's that none of them have land. None of them have a means of producing an income that they can rely on. Okay? There is no cap on how much of the tithe Israel could enjoy in the two off years. But they were presumably supposed to be more moderated in what they eat in the third year with their own indulgence. That means the tithe is pretty fluid. Not in it being less or more than a tenth, but in how that tenth of their income is used. We do the same sorts of things, right? When we know that there is a greater need over here, we might funnel more of our tithing over to this section in one year and funnel it over here in a different. They all get used in various ways that's no different than today. Similar to today, though, and with a more selfish perspective, tithing can feel a little bit like a tax. The Lord here is calling Israel to give up luxuries for the sake of those who have needs. He doesn't call anyone to forsake what they need. He calls them to give up indulgences, to help those who have a need. That is the mark of true religion, according to James one seventeen. Every good gift. Oh wrong text. Two seventeen. Thank you. Ha <laughs> ha thank you, Luann. Yeah one twenty seven. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Israel fulfilled that by the use of the tithe. So, considered a little less selfishly and more in spirit with the text, poverty poses little threat to God's children because God has made stipulations among the community of his people to look after the welfare of those who need help. Poverty should be no threat. And in providing for their care, the Lord provides for their rest. They are to be incorporated into the same joy and the same celebration that the well-to-do in Israel experience as well. Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 to 15. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. Same thing is listed in Deuteronomy 14. And he will give grass in the fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. The, those without land in Israel are to experience that same eating in fullness. Not only that, the giving is to be done in a spirit of joy. What is the point of Deuteronomy 14 and the tithing in it? To rejoice before the Lord your God. Paul picks up on that when he says that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Let each give in his heart as he has determined, not from compulsion, but joyfully. We could go into a topic of the Lord's Supper, but time doesn't let us do that. So the last thing we'll end on is here. Giving the tithe to those who are disadvantaged, we might say, is the equivalent of sorts of giving to God, even when that is not God's own people. Stunningly, Moses includes the stranger and the sojourner and those who are able to eat the food or the produce that Israel tithes. The alien does not need to keep Israel's food laws they can eat the carcass that Israel gives or sells to them. Is those same aliens, though, are to be able to enjoy the tithe that Israel gives. So if you look at verse 29, and the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, which is the same as up in verse 21, uh, you may give the carcass to the sojourner or sell it to the foreigner, those are to come and eat and be filled at, uh, as well. The tithe reminds Israel that she is a beggar. and God is the one who feeds her. Remembering that joyfully ought to make Israel one who gives to those who have need and a spirit of generosity, even those who are not part of God's people bringing them into the celebration where they, too, celebrate before God. It it functions uh, as a sort of evangelistic tool as well. I'll end with this this quote here from Daniel Block. The disposition of the church towards the marginalized continues to be a primary barometer of authentic spirituality. Christians should not wait for the state to take care of the poor in their communities. The passage is not concerned so much about the tithe as about providing another occasion— to celebrate in the presence of God, and to encourage generosity among God's people. Thoughts or questions over what we've covered today? Thank you very much. Enjoy your week.